because in large measure we have so many families that are away in their vacation time traveling, I thought I would wait to come back to our evening series on the book of Romans uh, probably in August. But if you will tonight, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 22, a passage upon which I love to dwell, and I think you will see how very important it is that we dwell upon it for a few moments tonight. Nothing exhaustive, but we want to uh, look at this passage and um, ask the Lord to change our hearts through it and to help us to see how it applies to the day in which we also minister the gospel. 2 Kings 22. Will you bow with me in prayer? And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, inerrant in the whole and in the part, we are thankful that the Holy Spirit who gave this word by divine inspiration also indwells us, and we ask that as the word is proclaimed, you will open our minds and hearts, illumine our understanding, and that you will take control of our wills and our affections that we also may long for the word of God to go forth to the uttermost parts of the earth and to fill our hearts, and that we may be faithful to indwell the word, to love it, to read it, and to live out of the fullness of it. And these things we ask and pray on this Sabbath evening in the name of Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Second Kings chapter 22, this is the word of God. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jadida, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkot. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hokiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Esaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. 
So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Achbor and Shaphan and Esaiah went to hold to the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. The word of the Lord. Now, people of God, I doubt that I have to convince you of the need of reformation in the church and revival in our land. Of course, as we look in the situation that we face in our country that is not dissimilar or is becoming not dissimilar from what we have just heard from the sweets, there are two things that we need to keep in mind. First of all, the distinction between the church and the world is almost non-existent in many places. And there is the rapid paganization of our culture. Now, I do not say these things to discourage us. These are simply the facts of the matter, and we have to deal with them appropriately. But here in this text, we see amazing grace. We see as we read about the kings of Israel, how wicked they were. And yet God, in his great mercy, gave to wayward Judah a most wonderful king, the king Josiah. Josiah's father, Ammon, led Israel into the cesspool of iniquity, but Josiah points to the true king. Anytime you read of the king in the Old Testament, whether you're reading in Kings or Chronicles or wherever it may be, you need to think, this person holds an office of king, and that office points ultimately to the king that is coming. Does that king, in the trajectory of his kingship, point well to that one, or is he an antichrist that points against him? Josiah pointed well to Jesus, the head and king of his church. The text tells us he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father David. He did not turn aside from the right or to the left. And this is a formula that is found in the book of Deuteronomy expressing adherence to God's law. And it is in the context of this king who had a heart for God that we find this great discovery of which we have read in this glorious passage. So the first thing we want to see in the text is this, God's word discovered, God's word discovered. The setting, of course, again, is Josiah who repairs the temple. The removing of idolatry and the restoring of right worship already was on his mind and in his heart. 
In 2 Chronicles 34, verse 2, we read, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and metal images." Perhaps there's some young person here tonight, just a boy, just a girl, but you are the one that the Lord may use in remarkable ways to spread his word. God used this young boy, Josiah, and used him as a young king to remove the idolatry from Israel. So in the process of wanting to see the repaired temple, he sends Shaphan the scribe to oversee the money until Hilkiah the high priest. And it's here that we have the great discovery. In verse 8, Hilkiah says, I have found the book of the law. And if you're reading the text appropriately, I think you can hear something of the passion and excitement of this high priest as he says, I have found the book of the law. It's something that had been lost. And of course, by the book of the law is meant Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy tells Israel how to be obedient. And it tells Israel the consequence of disobedience. And it must have been lost for a very long time. Evidently, Josiah had lived a godly life on the basis of oral instruction. He had attempted to be a faithful king without having read the book of Deuteronomy. Now I ask you, where do you suppose that oral instruction came from? Who do you suppose the person was who passed down the faith to Josiah? Well, I would venture to say that it was probably his mother. He had a wicked father, but probably his mother. As we have been saying even tonight, the Christian faith must be passed down. The Christian faith must be taught. The word of God must be taught. The great hymns of the faith must be taught. What worship is must be taught. And I'm assuming that it was his mother that taught him by oral instruction because he had not read the book of Deuteronomy, which told the king how he was to rule and reign in Israel. There was a discovery of the word of God. And there is a need for the word of God to be rediscovered in our day as well. We have Bibles that sit upon shelves that are unread, and we have Bibles that are wrongly read and wrongly taught from pulpits all through the land. Oh, how we need a rediscovery of the Word of God. Perhaps not a discovery the first time of the book of Deuteronomy, though that will be true for some. A number of years ago, I recall being at the public library and talking with a group of teenagers, and I was talking with them about the New Testament and the Gospel of John, and they had never seen a New Testament And so in my car, I had a stack of New Testaments and was able to pass out the New Testament. They had discovered the Word of God, or at least I hope they did, for the very first time. But the sad thing is the Word of God that has pervaded churches and pervaded Christian families that is no longer held high, no longer esteemed, no longer read, no longer reverenced, no longer faithfully proclaimed. Which leads us on to the second thing that we want to see in chapter 22 of 2 Kings. God's word read. God's word read. 
Now, it should be no surprise that we find multiple readings of the Word of God in chapters 22 and 23, for that's what happens when the Word of God is really understood and loved. Shaphan reads it in chapter 22, verse 8. Shaphan reads it to the king in 22.10. We probably can assume that it was read also before Huldah the prophetess in 22.14, and then the king reads it to the people in chapter 23. Look at chapter 23, the first couple of verses. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord." Now, this is the principle of Reformation and revival. And what we find as we go on in chapter 23 is that Reformation happened in the church and nation and that revival happened in the land because the Word of God was read by responsible leaders and passed on, even according to this text, to the little ones, to the children. What happened in the Protestant Reformation was a rediscovery of the Word of God. Merle de Binya, in his great work on the Reformation in England, has a chapter that is entitled, The Greek New Testament Raises the Dead. And many of you know that the Greek New Testament was rediscovered by ministers in the period of the Protestant Reformation, and it was read, and it spread, and the Word of God was translated into languages that could be understood in Germany and in France and in England. The Bible is alive, and the Bible spreads. It just needs to be shared. It needs to be read. It needs to be loved. It needs to be passed on. And so I ask you, are you so thrilled with the Word of God? Do you long to share the Word of God with your children and with others? May I remind you of Robert Haldane when he, in the 19th century, went to Geneva, Switzerland. And there, in that great city where Calvin had ministered and after him, Theodore Beza, And after him, uh, others like Francis Turretin, there had after that come a dearth of the preaching of the Word of God. So that by the time Haldane came to Geneva, the seminary students were being taught sheer Socinianism, Unitarianism, cold, lifeless, dead modernism, we would call it, in the seminary there in Geneva. What did Haldane do? Haldane said, come to, my, come to my rooms. He put a long table out, and on that table he placed Bibles, Greek and German and French and so forth, and he took them through the book of Romans. And one after one, those who had been students in those seminaries that taught falsehood were converted to Jesus Christ. They paid the price for it too. They really did. You need to read the story sometime. They paid the price for their belief in the Word of God. But it started the second revival, as it was sometimes called, in Europe. And throughout Europe, there was, again, the preaching of the Word of God. So why don't we read the Word of God? Some find it difficult. Well, you can only begin to understand the Word of God when you are filled with His Spirit. Others have brought in cultural views of the Bible. They're more influenced by ridiculous TV documentaries about the Word of God than they are what the Bible itself says. May I urge you to read the Bible on its own terms? 
Uh, I went to a school that was very hostile to the Bible. I'm not talking about my seminary. I'm talking about my undergraduate work. And let me assure you, you have nothing about which to be intimidated when you go off to these universities. Some do not want their sin confronted. I think that's a large reason that we don't read the Bible. We just don't want our hearts uncovered by the Word because when it is truly read and lived in, it uncovers our hearts and brings us to faith and repentance. Some people are just lazy. But you know what I think is mainly the case in settings such as ours? I'm talking about evangelical churches where the Word of God may be held high in the way we talk about it, but sometimes given lip service, it's because we don't love it. We just don't love the Bible. We just don't love the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? God may take you through experiences that will help you to love it more and more because you find Christ there. You commune with Him there. You find your comfort there. You find your salvation there. Do you love the Bible? So suppose, suppose you're dating this girl, and this girl writes you these lovely love letters, and you've been apart for some time, and when uh, you come together, she said, what did you think of my letters? She walks in, she sees this stack of letters, they're all unopened. Well, I was kind of busy. I really just couldn't read your letters. Um, well, don't you love me? Well, yeah, I love you. Well, whoa, whoa, now, if you really loved me, wouldn't you have read my letter, my letters? Well, that's the way it is with God's Word. He's written to us, His people, His covenant people, the greatest love letter that's ever been written He says, I love you, my people. I'm a God to you. You're my people. And we don't even open the letter. Some of us. I hope that's better. Not the case for most of us who are here tonight. Let me encourage you to love the word of God. But then thirdly, as we move on in the text, we see God's word received in chapter 22, verses 11 through 20, primarily. God's word received. It is one thing to read the words. It is another to receive the words. Uh, There are those who say, who believes this anymore? We're too sophisticated for this. Ask the critics what is worth keeping, or the Bible becomes a nose of wax. Josiah didn't do any of those things. He heard the word, and the word of God was self-attesting, and he bowed within his soul under the authority of the word that was read. And he was so moved by his own heart being opened by what was read and his concern for the people that he governed that in verse 11 of chapter 22 we read, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now you know what that means. He rent his garments because he was rending his heart. Because when he was exposed to the teaching of God's word, His heart was convicted of his need of a savior. The one who had written this book was speaking to his very soul. And so in tearing his clothes, it simply represented that he was rending his heart in grief upon realizing how the professed people of God were rejecting the word of God. Do we know such grief today? God may send reformation, renewal, and revival, or he may not, but I know that it will not come if God's people do not have hearts that are broken over the direction in which we see the church moving today. Hearts that are broken because we do not love the word of God. 
And so he wants to know how to lead the nation. And in verse 13, he says, go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people. How am I going to lead this nation? Well, the upshot is reform, and a massive reform at that. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he convenes the leaders and the people. In verse 3, Josiah consecrates himself and the nation to the Lord as the word of God is read to the people. And in chapter 23, verses 4 through 8, we see how he removed idolatry. Let's read these verses, chapter 23, 4 through 8, and see how massive his concern to remove idolatry was. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he disposed the priests, deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Giba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on ones left at the gate of the city." Now, I would say that's massive reformation, wouldn't you? That's a wonderful, massive reformation that comes as a result of the Word of God. And when he removed the Asherah and he beat it into powder and he took it to the Kidron Valley, the reason for that, of course, is that because the Kidron becomes torrential in the rainy seasons and it sweeps everything within its path into the Dead Sea. So it was a way of saying, we don't even want the dust and ashes of idolatry in our land. We want it swept away where it belongs in the Dead Sea. In chapter 23, verse 7, we see that he removed the ritual prostitution from the land. In verse 8, he destroyed the high places. In verse 24, he put away mediums and household gods. But way down in chapter 23, verses 21 and 23, we find that positively they begin to observe the Passover. Look at this, verse 21 of chapter 23. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. The highest feast of ancient Israel that pointed to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world 
had been neglected since the day of the judges. A remarkable truth. They had not been observing the Passover. Oh, for a Passover lamb that would take away the sins of sinners. That Savior is pointed to in that Passover ceremony. And they had not been observing. Can you imagine going for several generations without the Lord's Supper being observed in the church? Something like that is what is happening here. And so for the first time since the days of the judges, this king is used of the Lord because of God's word to restore the high feast of ancient Israel, the Passover in the land. And when God's word is recovered, it leads to action. It always leads to the destruction of idols within the heart, to the establishing of the Lord's priorities, to the killing of sin, and to the good news of the gospel that is proclaimed. And this is how you know if you are receiving the word of God. You can say you receive the word of God, and I can say it all I want. But if it doesn't change my life, if I'm not killing sin if I'm not casting down idols, if I am not loving Jesus, if I am not recognizing the power of his love in my life, if I'm not loving the church, if I don't care about the lost, if the word of God is not changing my heart, if it doesn't show by action, then I am not receiving the word of God. And so God's word is discovered, God's word is read, God's word is received. But fourthly, let's think about this. This text is God's word to us, to us here in this church, to us here tonight. You know, there are signs of losing the Bible. What can those be? A carelessness toward preaching, ministers who are careless about preaching, selective reading of the word, passing by convicting passages, missing Christ and redemption, disdain for God's law. And we lose the Bible when we do not read it when we do not value it, and when we only pay it lip service. Let's contrast a couple of verses. In Amos chapter 8, verse 11, there is this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That is a powerful passage and a very sad and pathetic one, don't you think? that there would be a famine of the word of God in the land. But compare that with the attitude that is found by the Thessalonians who hear the Apostle Paul preach in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now I ask which attitude is found in your heart. Would you be happy with a famine of the Word of God because the Word of God really doesn't mean much to you? Or are you eager to hear the Word for what it really is, the Word of Almighty God? One of the great Puritans, and the Puritans of course were preaching in an era, God raised them up to preach in an era when there, was, when there had been a dearth of gospel preaching in many ways. But there was one whose name was John Rogers, and I like to think of him because he was a man that was filled with content and he was filled with passion. And I think that true preaching should have truth, clarity, and passion. 
They would say, let's go to Dedham. That's where he ministered. Let's go to Dedham and get a little fire. And on this particular occasion, Thomas Goodwin, who was just a student, he was not yet the you know, president of Oxford. He was a student, and he came and he heard him preach. And on this occasion when he preached, John Rogers took the great pulpit Bible from the great cushion on the pulpit, and he held it up. And as if his word was God's word, he says, what have you done with my Bible? And he went through the ways in which the Bible has been neglected by the people. And then, as if he were God, he turned his back to the people and walked away with the Bible, all the while preaching to them, because you have not loved my word, I am taking my word from you. Then he fell upon his knees as if he were the people to God. And he said, Lord, don't take your Bible from us. We will turn. We will read it. Take anything from us, but don't take your Bible And as if he were God himself, he brought the pulpit to the pulpit, the Bible again, and placed it down and said, basically, I'll give you another opportunity. When Thomas Goodwin heard that, he went out and hung upon the neck of his horse and wept for 40 minutes before he was even able to to get on the horse and, and ride off because his heart was so moved. Those preachers knew how to say to their people, and to do so with some constancy, we need to be in the book. We need to love God's Word. We need to conform our lives to it. Do you love the Word? Do you see any of those signs of losing God's Word in your own heart and in your own life? If so, then this is the night in which you and I need to repent. We need to daily believe and repent. Beware of shifting foundation. Why all of this false doctrine, false religion, idolatry, false living? I see it overtly and covertly. Preaching that is nice and saccharine. Worship that is light on reverence. Preaching that makes no demands. But we are to bow to the authority of Holy Scripture and find on the pages of Scripture this God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, through whom only we can be saved by the sending of his son into the world who died upon a cross and who bore the wrath of God against our sin in order that we may be right with him. So, we see what God can do in this passage. He can open hearts. He can change entire nations. He can change hearts so that people who did not love the word love the word. And you know, before we can rightly address the religious and moral situation in our country, over which many of us are very concerned, we must address the religious and moral situation in the church. Or to be more specific, I have to address the religious and moral situation of my own heart. Judgment must begin with the house of God. Now, there's a book that some of you might want to read sometime. Its title, as I recall, is England Before and After Wesley. Uh, The point of the book is, before the evangelical revival was sent by God, here is what England was like, and afterward, this is what England was like. And it probably is no exaggeration that when God sent the evangelical preaching of the evangelical ministers in England in the 18th century, that he saved England from another French Revolution. Before the preaching of these preachers... 
England was known to be a nation that was full of gin. Mothers were said to give to their babies gin through their milk. It was a nation of drunkards. Preachers, if they preached at all, preached moralism. It was an immoral nation. It was a horrible situation. Such that Blackstone, the the famous jurist, went from church to church in London seeking for someone that could preach the Bible and preach the gospel. And he found no one in any of the great and well-known churches of London. And he reports that what he heard from the pulpits could have been preached in in any mosque. And then one by one, in England, God regenerated these men who already were pastors, most of them preaching in pulpits, but they were not preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And as they were regenerated, they were convicted and they went to the Word and they began to preach the Bible. And let me tell you, the whole nation was changed. Can God do that? He can. Should we pray for that? We should. Will He do it? God is sovereign. But these ministers went back to the old apostolic weapon of preaching and teaching the Word. Back to first principles, they took up apostolic plans... And they also had no inn. People were not coming to church. But God's Holy Spirit blessed in that remarkable way. And they exalted Christ crucified. And they lived in prayer. And they called men to faith and repentance. And God sent reformation and he sent renewal. So I ask, have you lost your earnestness before the Lord? Josiah rent his garment because he was rending his heart. Now, I'm preaching to God's people tonight. Sometimes we take that passage from 2 Chronicles and we apply it to the nation, but it's not right that we do so, certainly not in the first place. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That was addressed to the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel and the church were one. It is a passage that was addressed to the church. And the way it should be applied today is by application to the church. If my people who are called by my name, that's not the United States of America. The United States of America is not God's kingdom. It is the church of Jesus Christ. If we will humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Wilbur Smith noted nine characteristics of revivals in the Old Testament, and they're all applicable in one way or another today. He said this. Let me give them to you quickly. They occurred in times of moral darkness and national depression. Each began in the heart of a consecrated servant of God who became the energizing power behind it. Each revival rested on the word of God, and most were the result of proclaiming God's word with power. All resulted in a return to the worship of God. Each witnessed the destruction of idols where they existed. In each revival, there was a recorded separation from sin. In every revival, the people turned to obeying God's laws. There was a restoration of great joy and gladness, and each revival was followed by a period of national prosperity. Now, we believe in original sin and total depravity, and only God can change the heart of those who hate Him and hate His gospel. But he can do it. That's the point. 
And so what do we do? We need to pray for it, and we need to live consistently with the desire for such reformation and renewal in our day. You know, Spurgeon somewhere said, you cannot get out of the church what is not in it. And so you cannot look to the church of our day and expect that there will be reformation, renewal, revival, and, and spiritual prosperity if there is not spiritual prosperity in the hearts of the people sitting in the pews or in the ministers preaching in pulpits. Now, perhaps tonight there's some unbeliever. You're here and you hear this minister preaching to God's people, but I want to speak to you. And I want to say, a greater era has dawned than the era we have read in 2 Kings. A greater king has come. Josiah's intercessions could not hinder a future judgment. But our king paid the price of sin, and his intercession for sinners prevails. The old covenant was powerless to save sinners, but the new covenant is in Christ's blood, and it is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. And so Jesus Christ, through his minister, says to you this evening, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ that is held forth in the preaching of his word this evening. And I would like to conclude with a quotation from Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said this, The fullness of Jesus is not changed. Then why are our works so feebly done? Pentecost, is that to be a tradition? The reforming days, are these to be memories only? I see no reason why we should not have a greater Pentecost than Peter saw and a Reformation deeper in its foundations and truer in its upbuildings than all the reforms which Luther or Calvin achieved. We have the same Christ, remember that. The times are altered, but Jesus is the eternal and time touches him not. Our laziness puts off the work of conquest. Our self-indulgence procrastinates. Our cowardice and want of faith makes us dote upon the millennium instead of hearing the Spirit's voice today. Happy days would begin from this hour if the church would but awake and put on her strength, for in her Lord all fullness dwells. O Spirit of God, bring back thy church to a belief in the gospel. Bring back her ministers to preach it once again with the Holy Ghost and not striving after wit and learning. Then shall we see thine arm made bare, O God, In the eyes of all the people, and the myriads shall be brought to rally round the throne of God and the Lamb. The gospel must succeed. It shall succeed. It cannot be prevented from succeeding. A multitude that no man can number must be saved. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.